When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I'm interested in the emotional and cognitive aspects that can be passed on through our generations. It's beautiful to think of an experience somehow gaining a message that's so specific that kids are prepared, they're primed for survival. And that's really what, the, what, the, what my lab focuses on, what the Marlin Lab focuses on, how parents prepare their offspring for survival. That's Bianca Jones-Marlin. She studies how stress and trauma experienced by one generation can be communicated to the next generation, even when parent and offspring have little or no contact with each other. Her research is aimed at figuring out how that happens, exactly how something to be learned from an experience is transmitted from parent to child, preparing the child's brain to cope with adversity. This is so interesting for me to be talking with you because your work fascinates me. Oh, thank you. The thing I think that interests me the most is how you study the effect of trauma on the brain and its lingering effects. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that a good place to start is to talk about the Netherlands experience. Hands down. Uh, during the war. Tell me about that. Yes. So after the last winter of World War II, uh, it's the Dutch hunger winter is commonly referred to. The Netherlands were starved from food and they were starved from food because they decided to protest Nazi troops um, throughout the throughout the Netherlands. And so uh, they were cut off from food and um, uh, other countries had to fly in food. And during this period of time, uh, the people groups were starved. They were forced to eat uh, bricks and wood and steal whatever food was left. And a large percentage of the population passed because of this lack of food. And um, what was as unfortunate as it is astounding about this this period of time is that the children and grandchildren of, um, and the, the part that's exciting for my work, of males who were starved during the Dutch hunger winter their kids and grandkids seem to suffer from metabolic issues. So hypertension, which is high blood pressure, diabetes, and even schizophrenia. And the question was, how did an organism 
a human being born into the world conclude that the world had little food because diseases like hypertension and diabetes are essentially beneficial when you don't have enough food. But because they were born into a land of plenty, it led to disease. And so a memory of starvation for a short period of time, this is on the order of eight months, hmm. somehow lasted not just in that parent, not just through word, not just at the dinner table talking about trauma, but transferred on through the sperm for generations. And that was the cleanest, most studied um, example. Now, are there examples all over the world? Yes, when it comes to Chinese famine, looking at rates of diabetes and hypertension and um, many other uh, persecuted people groups, um, we see that these are high rates, but this was the most, most studied of those, of those uh, experiments. So how are you trying to ferret out how that transfer of knowledge occurs from one generation to another? As a, a relatively young scientist, I'm not waiting for um, a, a starved population of people to have grandchildren <laughs> to iron this out. So, <laughs> because I still do want, you know, still do want to get, 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 continue on with my career. My model organism are mice. So mice take about a month to procreate, and so within three months we can have our answers when it comes to the ramifications of a stress or a trauma. Uh, because also the fact that we're using mice, we don't use starvation in our, our current studies. Um, as exciting as they are, I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I'm interested more in the emotional and cognitive aspects that can be passed on through our generations. So what we do is we use the senses, so hearing, smell, taste, and we pair that with a stressful experience. And we're not talking about starving the animals for eight months or something that we would consider traumatic as humans. We use a light foot shock a light foot shock paired with an odor. What would that foot shock be like to us? <laughs> a, a, accidentally getting a shock from an electric light switch? Is it mild I, like that? I make sure all of my students test it because I want them to experience what, what the mouse has experienced as well. <laughs> oh, and good. you know, they're all nervous. <laughs> they're all a little bit stressed and they touch and they all jump back. So it's enough for us to do. <laughs> we uh, wouldn't want to keep our hand there forever. What happens then when they get that shock? Yes, that light foot shock paired with the odor. And so we have 10 seconds of, of, foot, of odor and then we co-terminate with a shock. That seems to create changes in the nose to the cells that respond to that odor. So the beauty of the, of the, of the nose um, that one of my mentors won the Nobel Prize for was that every cell in the nose expresses one and only one receptor. And it, so it's a beautiful mosaic that's very particular. And what we observed, um, this is work that we're following up on, what we observed is that when you pair the odor with the shock, only the cells that respond to that odor seem to increase. All of a sudden, there are more of those. There are more cells that respond to that odor when there is a trauma associated with the smell. And how amazing uh, is that, that the brain is saying, you need to change something <laughs> to have more yeah. cells that respond to this odor. And so that within itself is amazing because there's some conversation going on that we're, we, the Marlin Lab, are parsing out. But what's, I, I think, even more beautiful, or I guess parallel beautiful, is that the kids of those parents who were shocked paired with odor, are born with more cells that express the receptor of that odor. That, now, that somehow seems to explain the Netherlands experience to a great extent. <laughs> Am I done? We're good? <laughs> I could check it off the list. <laughs> good, good work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But it's, it's beautiful to think of an experience somehow gaining a message that's so specific that your offspring can, can incorporate that. 
And it's not just now that these children are walking around with anxiety because of the smell that they may come across, but it could just be that the kids are prepared for when that smell comes again, they're more sensitive to it. They can respond more easily. They can run away more quickly. They're primed for survival. And that's really what the, what the, what my lab focuses on, what the Marlin lab focuses on, how parents prepare their offspring for survival. So the smell that you were working with is the smell of almonds, I think, right? Yes, yes. So there, there's this tendency then for the mice and their offspring when they smell almonds to think, uh-oh, there's a shock coming. And this is one of the, the, the hard parts about working with mice. I wish I could ask them, like, so are you feeling a little bit anxious? How, are you uh, feeling a little bit scared? But all we have is behavior, which is, is also beautiful, a beautiful readout. So one part of the lab, what we're looking at is we're looking at areas in the brain that respond to fear. One area is called the locus ceruleus. It's an area for um, uh, the fight or flight area. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at these areas to see if the mice could talk to us. Would they say that they're feeling scared right now by being, by being presented with the odor that their parents were, were shocked with? So I'm wondering, therefore, if... 200,000 years ago, an ancestor of mine got scared by a snake, Mm. and I'm still benefiting from that uh, snake avoidance tendency because of all the neurons I have. It's an amazing question. We're only on generation two now. So (laughs) you come back in two years, 100% will have that answer for you. (laughs) In the Netherlands experience, there was not a good result. The offspring had disease as a result. But you seem to be saying, on the other hand, that you're not necessarily getting a bad effect from mm. the parent's trauma. You're getting prepared to deal with trauma in your own life. Yes. That Those two things don't seem to go together. Can you straighten me out on that? Hands down. So... What, what is very important about our work and what I want to make sure is heard is that th- this devastation does not equate to the destination. It does not mean that because this trauma occurred, the children and grandchildren are now like, um, for lack of better words, like out of luck for the rest of their eternity. When you look at the Dutch hunger winter, these offspring were prepared to not have food. Their parents had given them a message to say, if you were starved, you'd be okay because you're prepared to metabolize this food more quickly. But when you have so much food, that leads to diabetes. When you have so much food, that can lead to hypertension. They were prepared to be starved. So the question is, how do we readapt to the environment when it has changed again? And do we need a traumatic experience to readapt? Is the disease a traumatic experience? With our offspring, we see an increase in cell number. This could lead to changes in behavior. And what we're asking with the the secondary experiments are, are these animals walking around with anxiety? Are they Mm. always walking around stressed? Or are they really prepared for the smell of almond, which is a neutral smell, but in the wild, it could be the smell of an eagle swooping in or the smell of a pesticide that could actually benefit them for generations. You studied uh, some of this through watching how mice parent Tell me about that. What what can we learn from how mice parent? Oh, it's so beautiful. It, it really is how biology prepares the brain and the body for, for survival for generations. In virgin mice, before they've ever become impregnated, they hear the sound of a baby crying and they'll either ignore the pup, the baby pup, and leave it to, to die, um, or they'll cannibalize it. 
In the mothers, after they've given birth, they hear the baby crying, they turn around to it, they pick it up, and they bring it back to a place of safety. So why is it that a virgin will cannibalize or ignore, and a mother will take care, when the only difference is pregnancy? And so my work showed that oxytocin, which is considered the love drug, it's released during orgasms, eye contact, soft touch, also during the birthing process and milk letdown with breastfeeding, oxytocin changes the hearing centers of the brain in uh, in a soon-to-be mom so that the sound of the baby crying gains a different message. And so what we did is we were able to take virgins who were normally ignoring or cannibalizing, add oxytocin just to the hearing centers, it's called the primary auditory cortex, the hearing centers, and those animals no longer ignored, but they started taking care of the pups because the message of the cry was different. And so it's just the beautiful uh, dance between the experience and also the innate. So why does the oxytocin work at all? What's happening uh, there? Yeah, so oxytocin is a, it's what we call a neuromodulator, which means it has an ability to change the way neurons fire. And what oxytocin did in the primary auditory centers of the brain, and specifically the really cool part was it was specifically in the left hearing centers of the brain, which in humans, if you're right-handed, our left area is what's called our broca Wernicke area, our area of communication and expression. So it's a really important center of the brain. In mammals, just in that hearing center, it encoded a message that was not scrambled any longer like an aversion, but became something that was sensible, led to a change in behavior. Brain change, behavior. You make me wonder about something. Please. The oxytocin has an effect on the brain of increasing trust, I understand, mm -hmm. um, making you less wary of the person that you're experiencing that oxytocin with. For, for instance, that amazing discovery that if a, the owner of a dog and the dog look in each ah, other's yes. eyes— they look in each other's eyes for a couple of minutes. All of a sudden, they, they're bonded in a way they hadn't even been before. And, and there are changes in their bodies that you can exactly. track. So I'm wondering about the effect of oxyto oxytocin on the hearing area, the, the, the area, uh, the centers for hearing. Does it, can it work in reverse? Can you deliver... A, a signal to the hearing center that increases oxytocin? Ah, so that's a beautiful question. And that's something that the lab is, um, is parsing on, ironing out now. And I, I started to dig into that. If you present the sound of a baby crying and then record from the areas of the brain that release oxytocin, in this case, the area of the mouse brain and mammalian brain is called the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. And so this is the love center of the brain. And when you play the sound of a baby crying, does it activate that center of the brain? I don't want to give away too much because that data should be coming out very soon. Um, but if I were to give a hint, there is definitely a high correlation. <laughs> okay, that's nice. And as you mentioned, um, a non-invasive touch, a, what did you call it, a soft touch? Soft touch, eye contact, hugs. Yeah, hugs. All of these things can increase oxytocin, which is, I guess, why they call it the love hormone, because <laughs> in, a, in a good relationship, all those things are present. And not just a sexual relationship, but yes. friends hug. Exactly. Children are embraced. 
that seems to have a beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. While you're tracing the effect of trauma into yeah. future generations, can you also trace the effect, or do you suppose there's an effect from these beneficial moments uh-huh. of contact where there's more health delivered to future generations. Am I, am I, I don't know if that's clear what I'm that's trying to so say. That's so clear. And it's so important because what I, what I'm glean, what I gleaned from that question is can a beneficial relationship and interaction be something that's yeah. passed down through generations and many rodent mouse and rat studies have shown that when you have a mom that takes care of the pups, their pups are more likely to take care of their pups. Hmm. So I would ponder where do we want to focus our time and energy? If it is the case that a good mom will give birth to a kid who wants to take care of their own kid and that goes for generations and dads, then great, we're good. I, as a scientist, am happy with that and I don't want to spend too much time messing with it if it's not broken. My focus really is on when it is broken. What about when these are perpetuating, these relationships are perpetuating in a negative manner and they hurt individuals, they hurt children and they hurt society. So as much as that other question is probably most likely the case um, in humans, I, I really have focused my study on, on how we can make the negative better. What do you suppose that leads to in terms of a remedy? Uh, you're, you're tracking a, a negative effect. Can it be reversed? Yes. When I talk about my oxytocin studies, I usually have people come up to me afterwards and say, so I saw you can buy it on Amazon. Um, I'm going on a date on Friday. And it's like, no, no, that's not the way you use oxytocin. You can't just sprinkle it on someone's drink and they fall in love with you. You know, it's, <laughs> I would not recommend that. <laughs> it's not the way it works. You can't the, grab them and give them a light touch either. No, <laughs> you, exactly. And so as, as a scientist, as what we call a wet bench researcher, which means I put on gloves, I have a pipette, I do molecular neuroscience and, and uh, whole cell physiology is what it's called, the techniques that we do. We mm. want to make sure our work is rigorous and meticulous. So we're bringing up data that has been tried and true so that the world trusts us with more data. And so as much as we want to say oxytocin, fix stuff in mice, we can now put it into women who have postpartum depression. It's understanding how the brain works so we can optimize that in humans. It makes me wonder in general, in a general way, if you put people in prison for bad behavior Mm. as Mm. punishment... Mm. Are you going in the right direction or are you going in the opposite direction from what will help uh, them and if they ever have any offspring? Yeah. And the, the part about being human is that we don't need us as scientists to feel the answer to that question. We know what it means to traumatize a people group and what that means for generation. We can't put our finger on it. We can't always say, well, this is the gene that regulates trauma. But we know when we sit at the dinner table. We know when, for example, my my husband, who um, comes from Jewish ancestors, uh, has heard about the trauma of the Holocaust. Myself being a Black American, um, what I've heard about from from my ancestors. I don't need a, a pipette and a glove to know how that could affect generations. And yet, it's still not always believed, and there's still so much more to, to know. And so it's part of understanding our job as citizens in this world and then optimizing the beauty of science to really come through to to, to get an answer.
When we come back from our break, Bianca Jones-Marlin tells me how her childhood prepared her for a career as a scientist. The daughter of a mother from Guyana and a father from Queens, she was surrounded during her childhood by many siblings, both biological and adopted, and they gave her an appreciation of the diversity of human experience. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit Sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Bianca Jones-Marlin. I wanted to pick up on a description of her research that I read where she talked about kissing the neurons of a mouse's brain. You mentioned your pipette. (laughs) There's an interesting question about the pipette. Please. Where where it enables you to... It's sort of an amazing image to kiss the neurons in the brain. Ah, yes. How do you manage to kiss a neuron? Yes. uh, For for many years, for about seven years, all I did is kiss neurons. I I know them very well. (laughs) So the technique that we use to look at what's happening in the hearing centers of the brain is called whole cell in vivo physiology. So essentially what I do, if if I know neurons respond to electricity and I want to hear what neurons are saying or see what neurons are saying, I have to listen in. But neurons are very small. Um, they're about maybe five bundles of hair thick. They're about, mm-hmm. They go around 10 microns to 20 microns. That's so like five bundles of hair. And so what I do is I take a very skinny glass tube. I light it over fire. This is very, um, uh, I guess, forward thinking. <laughs> you light it over fire until it gets a little melted. You pull it and it snaps and you have an opening that's about the size of one hair. 
And then essentially stick a paper clip in one side with some liquid, put a small straw on it. And on the other side, I put it in my mouth and then I go fishing for neurons. And the, the piece of metal, the paperclip inside, will record electrical activity. The small opening will allow me to poke into a neuron. And then I'm able to hear the electrical activity that's happening, see it, because we have a way to take it from analog to digital and look at those the firing. Uh, that's how neurons speak. And I'm able to see what happens when I add oxytocin or release endogenous oxytocin. And so I go in and I kiss the neuron until I can break in. And then once I'm in the neuron, I'm recording. And then that's, 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 that's what I did for a very long time. So you touch the pointy end of yes. the tube to a neuron. Yes. And you make the kissing motion at the other end of the tube, and that allows you to open up the neuron exactly. and get, get inside it. Exactly. Um, how do you know you're at the neuron you're interested in? Ah, very cool. So what happens is that tension at this very small end of the opening, there's, there's tension because there's liquid inside and I'm going to the brain. So the tension will actually change. And I can see that because of the, the piece of metal inside. And so I see that, okay, there's tension. It's getting, it's getting stronger. It's tension is getting stronger. I'm, I'm approaching a neuron. And so that's when I get into my fishing mode and I say, okay, let me lay back, be calm. Don't breathe in, breathe out. And I just kiss a little bit until I kind of suck the neuron and I break into its membrane. Cause it's a, it's a fat membrane, a lipid membrane. So I can kind of squeeze in without actually bursting or hurting the neuron. And the neuron operates as usual once you get out of it? Yes, because the liquid that I put inside the pipette is the same liquid that's in the neuron. It's called intracellular uh, solution. So it doesn't uh, even know. Huh. This is, this is amazing. At such a small scale, you can yes. do this. And <laughs> you're beautiful. able to color the neurons so that you can see when they yes. increase in number. And that's the excitement of genetics, that we're able to say, all neurons that respond to almond, I'm going to make you green. And so the animals are born with all neurons that respond to almond. They're green. They have something called GFP, green fluorescent protein, that are expressed on them. And so when we look at them in the microscope, we know all the neurons that responded to almond are all green. And you see in plain sight the increase in the number thanks to the trauma that they, they responded to. Yes, the stressful experience seems to change change the work. And I will say that this is work that we're building upon. People have, have looked into this and really done the hard, brave work, I would say, with bringing this to the world and have gotten a lot of pushback surrounding that because it's 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 a big a big pill to, sm to swallow, to think that we potentially can live a life that's not 100% our own, but navigated by our ancestors who we may not have even known. Um, and so I'm really thankful for them taking the first steps to make those brave marks, even though they got pushback, so that the road is a little bit more paved for me to continue to, to, uh, to go through. So I'm interested to know how you got to be who you are and, and to work in this field. What were your parents like? What was your family like? Uh, my parents, they're wonderful. Um, my, my mother is, um, she came from South America. She's from a country called Guyana in South America. My dad's from Queens, New York, just as I am. Um, and growing up, I had the blessed opportunity to have many siblings. So I have my, my biological siblings, but we also have adopted siblings, foster siblings. And my foster siblings um, really gave me insight into how life can be lived differently. I had a very uh, beautiful childhood um, in Long Island in a place called Central Islip where um, 
I had very few worries. I was, I was a, a happy kid. Um, but my foster siblings came from homes where that was not always the case. And uh, there are stories of abuse. There are stories of neglect. There are stories of trauma. And also the trauma of being separated from your parents. Even as a young child, if there were trauma, there, there were traumatic experiences in the household, no child wants, not many children want to be separated from the, their, their parents. There's a bond there. <laughs> There's an oxytocinergic mm. bond there. Mm. And to understand life through people I love so much, like my siblings, not just reading it in a book or hearing it from far away, but to understand it to that level, I do think informed my decisions to go into science and education. So I, I'm a former teacher. I, I also am certified to teach in New York. Um, and I think it's important to understand how stress and the environment dictates brain health and education, because those are directly correlated to the health of society. Tell me about the children who were in your family uh, in foster care. How many were there as you were growing up? Oh, my. Um, it's... <laughs> Uh, it's not the first time I've asked this question. I've gone back and asked my parents, and we, like, they're, they're, because the foster care system, unfortunately, is so prolific, um, they're on the order of tens. I, I had many foster siblings. Some came in, you know, only for a weekend, or some came in for seven years. Some still consider me their, their older, younger sister, and vice versa. Uh, and so I, I would give a number of thirty, maybe, <laughs> um, but there's so many that came through, unfortunately. Um, because of the, yeah, because of the environment and the government and the way that things work. You know, you talked about the lingering effect of the Black experience in terms of your ancestral history. How have you coped with the lingering effects in the society? Yeah, it's, it's hard to do the studies that I do and uh, both see myself in it and also not see myself in it and try to maintain myself as neutral. Uh, and the truth of the matter is no scientist is neutral. We try to approach things as neutral as possible. And we sometimes even pride ourselves with being neutral, but our direct experiences and our life experiences inform our every, inform the way our mind work. And I try to make that something that's very open and inviting in the Marlin lab. Like I want your, your life experience to, to influence your science. So going back to what I said before, where like I may not need anyone to sequence my DNA to let me know that I'm black, it's because the world lets me know that I'm black, and those are the social lingering effects of um, toxicity that is that that is our land, uh, and it gives me pride when I'm able to take my passions and my experiences and apply that to my science in a way that can be heard by all. Even those that may not see me as equal can look at my data and say, but this data is excellent. Mm -hmm. And that's the language that I use and that I've been blessed with to use. And that's my protest. And that's my um, contribution to the world. That regardless of if you think I'm a woman or a mother, which I am, or black or first generation American, all things that certain people groups may not see as equal, you cannot argue with the facts of data. And so that's what I stand on. Which leads to concern about inclusion, I'm sure. Mm. For instance, you're the only black mm -hmm. scientist in your institution, I think. Uh, yes, I'm the first, first, first black scientist in um, the Department of Neuroscience uh, and in the Zuckerman Institute where I am, um, not in the Department of Psychology, which is my, my primary, uh, which is excellent, but um, yes, in my institute and in, in my department, my fir the first non-white Asian. And 
My guess is it's not deliberately the case, although you never know. But a version of exclusion light exactly. is the idea, that the wariness <laughs> that some, something will be taken away if we have more inclusion. Those who are already there will be edged out. How do you handle that fear? I think this is the importance of having communication. Uh, because from my perspective and my end, it's hard for me to, to glean why we would not have diversity of thought and science. We would not ever want something to be as, as mundane as having everyone believe the same thing in science. It takes away the fun of the debate. Mm-hmm. But I initially did not think of my presence as taking away from someone else. It's a concept I, I had a hard time swallowing because my presence on this earth has it doesn't, it doesn't take away from anyone else. Like we're, there's enough oxygen for all of us. There's enough sunshine, sunshine <laughs> yeah. for all of us. Um, and so I think understanding that did give um, me the ability to have some grace with uh, people in my, in my um, realm of, of science because there's a, it's a fear. Um, it's a fear that has no backing, but it's a fear that they feel. And mm-hmm. so understanding why there has been active exclusion because it's not by chance. It's not by chance that I, in 2021, am the first Black person to grace, um, grace these departments and institutes. But understanding my, my non-Black uh, counterparts and understanding their fear, it does. It gives me grace. That's all, that's all I really can say. It gives me grace to understand, like, I, don't, I didn't always get why they would be so angry with my presence. And it's because of a fear that is unfounded, but been ingrained in our culture. And on the contrary, it's been shown so many times in studies that varying points of view, varying life experiences brought to bear on a problem lead to more creative solutions for the problem. That, that, that almost goes without saying that you want a wise counsel. And wise counsel mm-hmm. can't be you. I can speak to a mirror for my entire life. But the reason why you have amazing scientists on your show that are all different is because they all give a different perspective. It's almost, uh, it's standard. Um, So when I think about inclusion, when I speak about inclusion, it's not just a diversity of thought leads to better science. It's active exclusion can only be balanced by active inclusion. The sensible things you're saying are behind my question about the hearing centers of the brain and oxytocin. (laughs) I'm hoping that your logical, felt analysis of this will land on ears and produce a little oxytocin and therefore (laughs) less wariness to the whole idea of inclusion. As I, as I, because biology is looking out for us and it doesn't benefit us or biology to tear each other apart and tear our society apart. It only benefits us to work together. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, this this it has been a really fascinating conversation. You're getting into you. things in the brain that really begin to answer some of the deepest questions we've all had. Yes, hands down. Well, thank you so much. We always end our show with seven quick questions. Oh, fun. Okay. Gener- generally in a rough way about communication. <laughs> okay. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, I wish I really understood how, how fear and faith work because young children, I have two young kids and it seems that they're fearless. They yeah. are fearless because they know I'm looking out for them. And then somehow throughout life, we lose that and we become fearful. 
Um, and so I wonder how like fear and trust balance in the brain uh, to make us like, is it beneficial or are we really like not living our best lives? That's something I think about. It keeps me awake at night. Well, I got the answer for you. It's too many almond shocks. <laughs> we got you it. Get, Check. You, you get enough of those. You're fearful of everything. <laughs> okay. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ooh, that's probably the most controversial question you've asked me today because it happens so often. I'd like to, I usually suggest um, a different perspective. Um, I don't, I don't out, outrightly say this is a different perspective and this is a correct one and it's my perspective. But I do say <laughs> I'd like to propose another perspective. And hopefully if the person I'm speaking to has the ability to cognitively be flexible, then they'll see the truth in it. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I think it goes back to um, the oxytocin. I, I had a talk and someone said, no, really, I'm going on a date. Can I buy this this oxytocin on Amazon <laughs> with, with no smile? <laughs> like, oh, no, no smile. please don't. <laughs> I love that. They have so much confidence in their own amiability. <laughs> they want it in a bottle. I was like, it's not even shelf stable. No. And also that's drugging your date. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh goodness! Uh, the, the 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 I usually say, "Oh no, someone's calling," and look at my iPhone <laughs> <laughs> or Apple Watch, or blame it on someone's kid. Uh, is that a kid crying? <laughs> <laughs> I hear a mouse crying. Yes. Now I need to just sniffle a little bit. You know, it's like, "Oh no," and then you just run away. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? I always go with, "Tell me about yourself." People are beautiful, and I love hearing about, about people. What gives you confidence? <sighs> what gives me confidence? That I believe I'm needed in the world. I believe the science is needed in the world, and I believe that because I have a unique background, just as everyone else does, um, only I can deliver my science the way I do. And I believe that for every single person, my presence doesn't take away from anyone else's ability to deliver their science and their work to the world. But I do firmly believe that mine can only be delivered by me. And so I take that as um, an honor. Last question. What book changed your life? I, I want to say, I mean, I... <laughs> As the first book would be like the Bible. Um, that was a pretty, pretty long, but I didn't finish reading it. So I can't really say that, can I? Um, I think I would say um, there's a book I read called The Shack that I think about often. Um, it's about a man who, uh, I'll only tell you the, the, the first few pages you find out a man um, has a daughter who is murdered, kidnapped and murdered. And um, he has kind of pretty much like an outer body experience surrounding this and where he talks to heaven and hell. And he talks to himself and he pretty much sees his daughter in this. And just him navigating the world in that manner through such a pain and finding beauty in the world through such a pain, I think allows me to, I, I think back on that book when things get tough. It was a pretty amazing book, The Shack. That's so interesting. As is everything you've been saying today. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been such a great pleasure for me as well. So thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world. 
and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Bianca Jones Marlin is assistant professor of cell research at the Zuckerman Institute of Columbia University, where she runs the Marlin Lab. You can check out her lab website at biancajonesmarlin.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at BJ Marlin. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Robin Dunbar. He's one of the very few people to have a number named after him. Dunbar's number is 150, which he's found is the limit of the number of friends and family with whom you can have meaningful relationships. But in our conversation, Robin reveals another number that's even more important. Five. Your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you're going to live is best predicted by the number and quality of close friendships you have. It's not all friendships, it's this little core in the center of round about five uh, kind of best friends and family. The, the number you have in that inner circle and the quality of those friendships is a very, very strong predictor of both your psychological and physical health and well-being. It's quite extraordinary, you know. If we could fix the loneliness problem, <laughs> we could do without doctors. Robin Dunbar and the Math of Friendship, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.